In the name of the Father, and the Son, and God's Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. So this morning, uh, we come to the last in our winter series. We have been following Moses and his people as they made their exit out of Egypt and made their way towards the promised land. Uh, we have watched them take their first leap of faith, stepping into the moistened soil of the Red Sea, marching into an unknown future with really nothing but a promise that God will go before them. We have uh, followed them as they wandered in the wilderness, feeling abandoned by God at times, murmuring, complaining, because God gave them not what they wanted, but only what they needed, and only one day at a time. In the midst of this journey through the wilderness, they came to Mount Sinai, uh, the same area that you remember Moses had received his call at the burning bush. Because remember, God had been preparing Moses for this day from the very beginning, even before he recognized it. And at Sinai, God laid down the law to Moses. He gave them these tablets, this top ten list. Um of which the first two were absolutely crucial. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. There are no other gods before me. And a second was like unto it, don't go making any idols. In other words, you can't take a picture, a selfie. You can't take a picture with me. You'll never get it right. But the stony dust had barely been blown off the tablets when Israel started to violate both of these. Moses had gone up onto the mountain, and uh, it was a summit meeting, and apparently it was going very well. Uh, Moses and God are good friends at this point. They have a lot of catching up to do. But down below, at the base camp, uh, the people are getting anxious. Uh, they want to do something. They want to go somewhere. They want to see something tangible that will satisfy all of their spiritual fidgeting. Where was Moses when they needed him? He was out of sight, talking to this God who they could not see, let alone hear. So instead, the people go and find Aaron, Moses' brother. They gather around him and they say, you know, we don't know what's become of this brother of yours, whether he's coming down or not. Folks are getting a little restless here in the camp. So we've taken a vote. And uh, what we think is that we need a proxy. We know it won't be God, mind you, but it'll help to tide us over. You know, it's, it's hard, Aaron, when everybody else around you has got some, some God that is visible, something that you can see, something, a place where you can lay your flowers and, and burn your incense. You just want something like that yourself. And it's interesting, I think, for those of us in a society that puts such a high premium on democracy to realize that the majority, that the will of the people can be equally dangerous. So Aaron, seeing the intensity of, of the majority, knowing he has to do something, Aaron steps into the breach. He tells everybody to take off their jewelry. 
let's get those rings together in a pile. I was thinking of Dan Doby, a jeweler here, uh, right before uh, Valentine's Day. Dan says, get all those rings together. I can sell them. <laughs> right, or melt them, whatever. Ladies, I want those neck chains and bracelets. And you Gen Xers, take those gold rings out of your ears and nose. And you youngins, take those navel rings out as well. And if I could get you to take off your tattoos, I would as well. But that's a different story. We're going to have a community meltdown, is what he says. So everybody contributed to the pile. And pretty soon they had enough mold. And they could start pouring it into these forms and they had a golden calf to worship. Now, the scholars, frankly, are a little sketchy about the meaning of this calf. Some say it was a representation of a pagan idol, that it was borrowed from their neighboring Canaanite fertility cults. But there are others who say it was just a benign symbol. It's, it's an animal on which Yahweh the Lord could ride not unlike the way Jesus rode on a donkey on that first Palm Sunday. The Old Testament doesn't tell us much about it, doesn't refer to it again except in this context. Um, all we know is that it was a graven image substituted for God. Now, the traditional interpretation of this story is pretty much a no-brainer. Um, it warns us against substituting worldly goods for a heavenly God. And I have heard many sermons, probably a few of my own, which have railed against substituting mammon for God. And it's a good point to make. I mean, lots of lives have gotten fouled up when a person loses his or her soul devoting um, themselves to making money as opposed to worshiping God. In the worst case scenario, the kids get neglected. Um, the job becomes the all-important thing. Your relationship with your partner gets taken for granted, and eventually you, or maybe they, begin to wonder, what's missing? Is this all that there is? Whatever happened to whatever it was that we once had. In this consumerist society where money talks, you remember after 9-11 what we were counseled to do? We should all go shopping. That's what was said by the president. In this kind of society, a house, a new car, a 401k can easily become a substitute, a, a, a golden calf something to worship other than this unseen God. So the story of the golden calf is really not wasted on us. Don't worship the almighty dollar in the place of an almighty God. But I would say there is something more subtle that is going on here, and we don't want to miss that. It is the whole issue of wanting our God to be just a little more visible and just a little less removed from us. It is the story about people like us who would like some evidence that God is really here, that God is with us now. 
a God who is a little more accessible, a God whose benefits are just a little more tangible. Down at the base camp there at Sinai, um, they said, you know, let's make a God that we can see. And let's make it now. And who of us, at one time or another, has not demanded a God who is on call? God on the way to the emergency room. God in the middle of the night when I wake up who will immediately calm my fears and my anxieties. God who is right there when I need him. But what do you do when God is out of sight? Or even worse, when God is silent? Because the silence is really hard to bear, especially when you're not sure what God might say. None of us is particularly good with the silence. I think it's one of those reasons why we unemotional, dour Presbyterian types have lost so many members over the last three or four decades. One of the reasons is because we are a part of the Christian family that doesn't claim to know all of the answers, who think that it is actually virtuous to sort of live patiently with the questions. There are times, honestly, where I think it would be just better to be like Pentecostal, <laughs> with a little more tangible sign of the spirit. You know, somebody jump up and speak in tongues, or this whole business of being slain by the spirit. We need somebody writhing in the, in the, on the floor in, in one of the um, passageways in the church. Somebody who's shaking, overwhelmed by things that are unseen, but at least for that moment, very much there. I'm a little more like Phil Jackson, uh, the NBA idol, um, who is sometimes referred to as the Zen master in basketball. Um, Phil, raised in a Pentecostal household, realized at the age of 15 that that was just not going to happen for him. And so he said, I started working on my jump shot. <laughs> Blaise Pascal once wrote, every religion that does not affirm that God is hidden is not true. Immortal, invisible, the old hymn says. Ours is a God that we cannot see. And if we are honest, sometimes cannot feel. Which is why God knew that people like us, visible, audible, here and now types, those of us who are prone to short-term rather than long-term goals, those of us who are always looking for easy answers from our politicians and our religious leaders and our therapist gurus, for easy answers rather than complicated answers, 
God knew that it would always be tempting for the likes of us to make for ourselves graven images. But God will have none of that. Preferring not to be bound by those forms of particularity, not by our things or our thoughts or our feelings. God is bigger than, not bound by or contained by any of these. In fact, you'll remember from the story of the burning bush, you'll remember God's name. I am who I am. I will be what I will be. Well, just try to lay flowers or burn incense in front of that when you have a chance. Bill Beekner writes, the world hides God from us. Or we hide from God. Or for reasons unknown, God hides from us. But however you account for it, God is often more conspicuous by his absence than by his presence. And God's absence is much of what we labor under and are heavily laden by. I think that's what the people of Israel really wanted that day. They wanted direct, high-speed access to the holy. Their complaint was not that they didn't have a God, but that sometimes their God just felt so far away and so silent. And so rather than deal with the silence, they decided to make a God that they could fashion, a God that would tide them over, a golden image that would help to calm their anxiety. And who of us doesn't want something like that, immediate access to the holy. You have a job offer that's on the table, and it looks pretty good, but it does mean uprooting and changing some things about your life, re-envisioning your future. Is it the right thing to do or not? Blessing or curse? How about a sign, God? You've been waiting for the pregnancy for years. Two miscarriages, much discouragement, a strain on your marriage. Now, finally, you're pregnant. But the amnio has come back indicating a syndrome in the fetus. What should we do? Is there any word from God as to which direction? Carry to full term, even though the baby will likely die soon after birth, or terminate now? Should we even think about getting pregnant again? How about a sign, God? There is this anguish that's going on in the house. We have a daughter now who is nothing but rebellious, belittling you and refusing to follow even the most minor of household rules, staying out past curfew not doing what she could at school. And now there's this tattoo of a snake that's curling up her right shoulder. What should we do next? 
You've been to the psychologist. You've talked about it as a family. You've worked with the counselors at school. It just seems like there is no end in sight. Where is God in this apparently God-forsaken mess? And why doesn't God answer your prayers for wisdom? Or at least some much-needed peace? All of us at times could use a direct line to God's unlisted number. Some immediate response to our earthly problems. But sometimes at least, there is silence. And often there is delay. And we wait impatiently in that delayed silence. But maybe, the silence is more than we think. Barbara Brown Taylor, in her Beecher Lectures at my old seminary, entitled her message, When God is Silent. And she warns us, only an idol always has answers. And that we would be well advised to be patient with the silence. For God does not always answer us quickly, she says, not to mention audibly or visibly. Sometimes God comes to us in a way that only the heart can discern, that only the eyes of the heart can see, that only the ears of the heart can hear. Taylor says, silence is as much a sign of God's presence as of God's absence, a divine silence which is not so much a vacuum to be filled, but a mystery to be entered into. There is something God knows in all of us that longs for a politician or a religious leader or even a God who will just fix it. We are so impatient sometimes to have all the questions in our lives resolved, so eager to have all of the growing done and the waiting over. But God, it seems, often comes to us on a different schedule, moving in and out of our lives at a different pace. And that is very difficult for us, fast food, instant message types who really do think that the world should run on our schedule. So Rainer Maria Rilke once wrote to a young poet, I want to beg you as much as I can to be patient towards all that is unsolved in your heart and try to love the questions themselves. Do not now seek answers which cannot be given to you because you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything. Live the questions now. Perhaps you will then gradually, without even noticing it, live along some distant day into the answer.
impatient as we may be, the constant witness of our faith is that God is closer to us than the blood flowing through our veins. God is nearer than the breath we are breathing at this very moment. And sometimes we understand and sometimes we don't. And sometimes we feel it and sometimes we don't. Even Jesus at one point said, my God, why have you abandoned me? I am who I am. I will be who I will be. That is God's name. But this is the mysterious one in whom we live and move and have our very being, who for reasons we may never understand has given himself in Jesus and who has promised, I will never leave or forsake you. And sometimes all we have, or so it seems, is that promise. So be patient with the silence. Live the questions. Even the silence bears God's name. Amen.